0: Uh, We are continuing, uh, which we will probably do through Lent, just working through the lectionary. Uh, I'm working on a sermon series through the church, but that apparently takes some preparation. But this is wonderful because I get to study three passages every week and reflect, well, four if you count the psalm reading, and reflect on what the common wisdom of God's people as they have... Search scripture and said, what is a rhythm as we think about the life that we have in Christ? This lectionary is designed to sort of walk us through a relationship with God every year. And so we're taking opportunity uh, to, to, with our other brothers and sisters, most of the church around the world, to be reading the same texts and reflecting on the same truths and content. This morning is in uh, the history of the church, again, not because it makes it a special day or that we get bonus points for remembering this, uh, but just in the rhythm of a Christian life. This is Baptism Sunday, where we reflect and remember uh, Christ's baptism and its significance and its implications. And so Let's put the text in front of us. We'll be reading the passage from Luke. It's fairly familiar, uh, but we'll put it in front of us. I'll start with um, verse 15 and uh, read through verse 22. The people were waiting expectantly. This is uh, folks waiting around as John the Baptist uh, is baptizing folks. Wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The winnowing fork is in his hands to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barns. And he will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. And and with many other words, John exhorted the people and preach the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended him in bodily form like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to bind our hearts together as those assembled here this morning as your church. Lord, let us be reminded that a church is not a building, but it is the living stones, each one gathered together each one being shaped by you through your word. So we ask, Lord, that as we come to this place and to the preaching of your word, that you might guard the preaching of your word, that what is said this morning would be useful for the building up of your people into that living temple. And whatever is untrue or not beneficial, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, So I think most of you are probably... uh, heard the phrase, I've certainly thrown it around uh, in various times in histories, uh, that um, sorry, now i got to get back on track, really, pastor. Right, so uh, again, living example, the great unwashed masses who would come in and disturb a sermon as it was just starting, right? The phrase, the unwashed masses, right? This idea that there is some group out there that is, well, somewhat beneath us. And interestingly enough, a little bit of history, uh, the the phrase, the unwashed masses, uh, not surprisingly, started in Victorian England, uh, and it was started in a Victorian novel Uh, by a man uh, named uh, Edward Linton. And the novel is not very famous, called Paul Clifford. But that one phrase has survived. And it's the idea that those who have it together are washed. Their clothes are clean and pressed. They have their lives together. And the rest of us, uh, somewhat scruffy, somewhat uh, trying to make it uh, hand to mouth, end up in that great Victorian scene that we see in uh, how many different novels and stories and on PBS on Sunday nights, the great unwashed masses living in the filth and the sin and the brokenness of this world. And there's always a temptation, and this is sometimes what, what creates a challenge in the church, that as we grow in our understanding of who Christ is and we find ourselves more able to avoid the, the certain elements of the brokenness and fallenness of this world that we, we find ourselves often feeling like we're a little bit more put together than those around us. And the question is, of course, how do we avoid an inappropriate understanding of what it means to be robed in the righteousness of Christ and what it means to be washed and what it means to desire for all those that we know, that they might know the beauty and the healing power of being washed and made new. And what does it mean then for Jesus, who had no sin, to submit himself to the very act of baptism? So we're going to look this morning at first of all, what does it mean for Christ to submit himself to baptism, to become a part of the unwashed masses, if you will? And then what does it mean? For Jesus to be the Son of God in whom He is well pleased. And how does that encourage us in the midst of our daily lives? First, He takes the stain of our sin. Again, for everybody else who got into the Jordan River, those, group, those groups of people who were coming to John and wrestling with what it meant to prepare for God's return, which they all expected... Right There was a great air of expectation. We talk about this regularly. If we're talking about first century Jewish folks, we're talking about people who longed for a king to return, who would set things right. And most of their earnest desire was to be prepared for him. And so it's not surprising that John did draw people to himself who were asking, okay, if someone is saying that the Messiah is soon to come and that we must be preparing for God's return then let's do those things that prepare our hearts and our land for the return of the king. And so one of those things, certainly all of the symbolism of being washed in the Jordan River, right? We know the history. It's the land, it's the way in which the people of Israel left the wilderness and came into The Promised Land. They crossed the Jordan River. And the Bible loves to use that as imagery of being washed and prepared of coming into the Promised Land. And so it had great symbolism, great weight, great significance. And so John is set up here at the River Jordan, baptizing who? Well, again, we looked at it, I think, a couple of weeks ago. You can look a couple of verses back. But it's good Jewish folks who are coming out. And wanting to know what it means to be prepared. What must must we do? And so sort of going in reverse order, you've got uh, effectively the police officers of the day. Right? The soldiers were not Roman soldiers. They were Herod soldiers. And their job was fairly domestic. They kept the peace. And if they couldn't, then the Romans would step in and set everything straight. But they were Herod's means of keeping the peace in the town. And so what does John tell them to do? Well, John says, look, don't extort people. You don't get to pull people over. And you can imagine there was probably something like driving a donkey while Samaritan in in, in Judea, right? I mean, there were certain ways in which racism is always racism. And if you can pick on somebody who's either poor or disenfranchised, then you do. And what does he say? He says, look, be happy with your pay. Treat people justly. So the first group are the law enforcement agents of the day, and he says, look, just be honest and do your job properly. And the next group, he says, is uh, the tax collectors. And again, we can all probably imagine that that tax collecting was as onerous then as it is now. And we can all point to, no doubt, uh, ways in which Uh, We wish our taxes were were spent better, but it was even more flagrant in the first century where actually it really was just taxing people to get nicer houses. Like occasionally it was for a war, occasionally it was for a a huge, you know, water facility, but oftentimes it was because you wanted uh, new frescoes on your summer palace. And there was nothing stopping local despots, let alone the Roman emperor, to simply raise taxes for whatever need they had. This continues all the way up through the Middle Ages. Again, I, I love uh, the, studying the 14th century. And, of course, the taxes on the French people were regularly raised so that they could celebrate things that the French king thought was fun. And occasionally they'd have a war. Or they'd have a war which they didn't actually fight because they spent all the money on their tents and their food and then they got bored when the food ran out and didn't actually fight. And so there's a whole way in which we know through human history and our own experiences that those who collect taxes often feel like they are robbing us for the pleasure of somebody else. And the reality is, of course, in the first century that was absolutely true and it was even worse because taxes were so random, the tax collectors could say, well, Herod just levied a new tax. He could be telling the truth. He could be lying. He could take a bigger percentage. And interestingly enough, John doesn't say become unemployed. John says, do your job honestly. Which has got to be a difficult thing when you are an honest person in a corrupt structure. And yet John believes that there's a way in which that can happen. And then finally... Sort of your middle class, mundane people come and John encourages them to be generous. If you have two tunics, share one with a person who doesn't have a tunic. If you have extra food, feed the hungry. And so you have in the midst of John's baptism really the normal people just trying to get by. Trying to be Good faithful Jews. And John raises basic biblical ethics. But what that means is that everybody who got in the water were people wrestling with the sins that you and I often find ourselves wrestling with. Can I really afford to be generous? Will anybody really notice? Can I get away with this little infraction? The Jews of Jesus' day were desiring to live good lives, and they asked John about it. And, of course, what John did was get to the heart of each one's security and identity. If I'm going to be an ostracized tax collector, I might as well skim a little bit off the top. If I have a sword in my hand and I can make an extra $5 by putting somebody under pressure, then I'll make a couple of extra sisterity. If I am just trying to figure out how to live my life and take an occasional vacation, God, can you really ask me to be that generous? Jesus gets in the water with people like that. He's baptized by the same waters. He's baptized into their sin. You see, for all of us, the symbolism of baptism is being washed clean. But when Jesus goes into the Jordan River, what he's doing is identifying with everybody that John was speaking and pastoring to and correcting and challenging them with their idolatry. Not that Jesus did those sins, but he identified with them. He didn't see them as the great unwashed masses. In fact, he washed themselves in the same dirty water that they washed them. Selves in he allowed himself to be baptized into their identity naturally culturally and individually he identified with the people of israel not in their perfection not in their beauty but in their brokenness in those moments where they were challenged do i have to give up that extra tunic what if mine gets a hole in it how will i care for my family All honest concerns that can lead to tragic results. Jesus then does Israel right. And this is important. So in Jesus' baptism, He identifies with all the brokenness and sin of His people. He puts that on Himself. He identifies with them. And then He goes out into the wilderness and does everything Israel couldn't do. He begins to reverse all of their failings in his actions and in his words and the first thing he does of course is to cross into the wilderness and you can tie each one of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness to what Israel failed to do so think with me if you will what is the first temptation of Jesus in the wilderness Uh, the tempter comes and says you should make bread because you're hungry what is Israel's chief complaint when they get across the Red Sea You remember when we had pots of meat? Now you've led us into the wilderness and we're all going to die with no food. And God gives them manna and he gives them quail. Jesus resists the temptation to doubt God's provision, to complain against his hunger, to use his power to supply his own needs. He trusts God's provision. Next is uh, what you worship worship me and I will give you the kingdoms of the world. Jump to Exodus 17. Sorry, Exodus 32. Golden calf. Worship something tangible. Worship something that I can put my hands on. Even in the midst of the presence of God, God's people, even in the wilderness, fell into idolatry. Worship God alone. And then the final thing is uh, Jesus, get up to the top of the temple, fling yourself down. All right, you trust God so much, let's see if he's around. Let's see if he's paying attention. Maybe the clockwork deity is left for the day. See if he'll catch you before you hit the ground. Jesus' words to the tempter is what? You don't test the Lord your God. Now that's interesting because in Deuteronomy 16, God's people are warned not to test God again like they did at Massa which is in Exodus 17, which is a story about God providing water from a rock. And again, this idea, God, I will test you. Your job is to be faithful to my moment my moment needs. And if I fling myself off into absurdity, you're supposed to catch me. You don't test God. Jesus resists all of those temptations, the temptations that Israel failed Not only does he wash himself in the same water of the Jordan River, identifying with all of those sins from the common sins that you and I know as we wrestle with security and finance and generosity to those which become more egregious in government corruption or even the abuse of power. Jesus washes himself in all of that and then goes across the Jordan and defeats the tempter. And comes back and brings that life and light back into Israel. That's why he does all of those miracles so often as he is showing what happens when life and light moves forward. But he always identifies with his people. He's washed in the human condition. And unlike any other human being before him, he takes that and turns it white as snow. No one else could take on the sin and turn it into life. Which is where we get to in the Father's words. This is my Son, beloved Son. Again, my stars. Uh, My beloved Son. Now, if we were first century Jews who knew our Hebrew, we would hear those words in the Hebrew and in the Greek translation and realize that that's the exact same phraseology as God talking to Abraham. Take your beloved son. Go to a mountain. And then when he stops Abraham's hand, he says, Now I know because you did not withhold your beloved son. And now we have the answer to the question, which is, There's not enough rams in thickets. To fix the problem of sin. Whose beloved son will be offered. And God the Father. As his son stands in the Jordan River. Being washed with all of E.C. Bell's filth. Says this is my beloved son. This is the one whose hand I will not stay. Whose blood will be shed. His beloved son. And so we have this reference back to Genesis chapter 22. And that story that reality that someone's son is going to have to set this straight and it is God alone who offers himself his beloved son in whom i delight and this this is fun we got it's all fun but it's sobering isaiah 42 i encourage you to go home and and, and look at it but this is where we get this uh, amazing phrase about i uh, i delight in here Is my servant in whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will what? Bring justice to the nations. He will set things right. He's not simply a sacrificial lamb, but he is a king who will restore. Both of the words that Luke uses in his telling of God's proclamation, the Father's proclamation about who his son is. Remind us of Abraham and Isaac. And remind us of the promises of Isaiah 42 and who this king is. And Jesus holds both of those. Jesus holds both of them as His commission for us. That we might have life. So what does it mean? What does it mean? These are great truths, and hopefully you see the beauty of Scripture and the repetition and the depth of of the beauty of the story of who Jesus is. But what's the implication? The implication starts with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, first on Christ and then on us. We read that amazing passage uh, back in Acts, which is somewhat confusing about the need for the Holy Spirit. Because it is the Holy Spirit that brings life and light to us, just as he brought power to Christ. Just as he was with Christ in his temptation in the wilderness and his temptation in the garden. First implication is we have been and are recipients of the Holy Spirit. When you wonder if you have the strength, the answer is no, but the Spirit does. Do we rest in the goodness of the Spirit? Is it true of your life and meditation, not that we think of God the Father far off, Jesus is my best friend, which is wonderful and true, but the Holy Spirit is his abiding presence within me. What does it mean for us to reflect on the presence of the Spirit, the strength of the Spirit, the recognition that that Washing has turned us into vessels of a living God. To be a vessel of the living God. Can we be any more radiant, any more glorious, any more filled? John's argument is that when we know that reality, all of his exhortations... To be people of God. Find their strength. Find their structure. Find their hope. We can be generous people. We can speak up for those who have no voice. Using the power of words to protect our brothers, our sisters, our children, our widows, our orphans, and our aliens at the gate. Use the resources we have and the structures of the church to create safe places. To be a community that gives the hope of who Christ is. Part of the reason we're talking about the subduction zone is because God uses those tragedies as opportunities for life and light. We pray that it doesn't happen. We ask that it doesn't, that He be gracious. But we know that they often do. Are we prepared to be His hands and feet, to give a tunic, to give our extra food, to make sure that our legal structures do not break down in the face of a cataclysmic event, to make sure that we are caring for and seeing peace and community maintained? Jesus was washed, became a part of the great unwashed masses, Because there was dignity and reality and created in the human, I'm sorry, in the image of God in each one of them. He knows who we are. He knows what we're capable of doing in Him. He knows what you're capable of more than you do when you find your strength in Him. He washed Himself to identify with you because He knows who you are better than you know yourself. You are worth it. He knows what you can do by His Spirit. He identifies with you because He loves you. That's the first great story of the Gospel that God came close to identify with us, that we might identify with others, destroying the notion that there is any great unwashed mass, but that there is one reality of a God who washes all who come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you for the goodness of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you have not stayed afar. We thank you that you even give us your spirit. Lord, we pray that we might rest in it in ever greater degrees. In Christ's name, amen.